Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, episode 22, The Prohibition. Grab your favorite non-alcoholic beverage and let's get started. I want to start off the episode today by making a little announcement. We recently launched our own merch line for the show, so if you're interested in picking up some sweet swag, then definitely head over to the Complete History Podcast series on any social media platform where you'll find a link to the website for our merch. Today we're going to be trying Arbuckle's Ariosa Coffee, a coffee which we have spoken about quite a bit on this show. I actually tried to make it the way that it suggests on the uh, packaging based on the way that they would have originally made it. Um, Essentially, that involves heating it up over a fire, or in this case, on a stove, getting it to a boil. Um, And then you're actually going to add in your coffee and take it off, let it cool down a little bit, leaving a lid on it if you can. After about three to five minutes you're going to go ahead and add a splash of cold water to it as you see in the video version if you're watching didn't quite separate the coffee out that much so the alternative is you can use an eggshell to try to separate out the coffee grounds but that also didn't work quite as well as i was hoping so I ended up using a ladle to get some of the coffee out, but ultimately it was turning into cowboy coffee, which as you remember, this is cowboy coffee as they were drinking out west back in the day. But personally, I'm not a huge fan of uh, grounds in my coffee. So I went ahead and uh, filtered out about half of it and spooned in about the other half so that way it wouldn't be completely full of grounds. With that said, we are featuring Arbuckle today because unfortunately, as we're going to find out later in the narrative, they are going to start declining. So I figured before they begin their decline, uh, let's go ahead and try some Arbuckle Ariosa. We start by smelling it. It definitely has a medium roast kind of smell to it. Um... You know, it's not maybe quite as uh, bright as uh, a light roast coffee. It doesn't have those acidic notes in the smell. It's also not super roasty like you might expect from like a dark roast. So I'm just guessing it's probably medium roast. Honestly, yeah, it's a pretty mild coffee. Definitely giving me a very medium roast flavor profile has a bit of a Latin America aspect to it, but to be honest, I'm almost feeling like it could even have like an Asia Pacific. It, it tastes a little um, earthy, herbal, a little s- spicy, even slightly, like you might expect from an Asian coffee or a Pacific coffee. But definitely I'm getting a little bit of those um, subtle, like very subtle nutty chocolate notes that you might expect from a Latin American coffee. It is a little bit more of a bitter coffee as well. Um, it doesn't really have that acidic aftertaste. So a little bit more bitter than I think I would have anticipated. And I'm not quite sure if that's from the way that I made it, boiling it on a stove or not. Um, but it's it's not a bad tasting coffee as long as you're okay with a more bitter tasting coffee. 
So let's go ahead and jump back into the show as we say farewell to Arbuckle for right now. Kickstarting the Roaring Twenties was the prohibition in America, which began in January of 1920. The very thing which led to flappers, speakeasies, and muscle cars. But this political movement also led coffee to take off even further in America. So let's see how it began. Technically, a temporary wartime prohibition was implemented on November 18th of 1918, which limited alcohol content in drinks to 1.28% as a great way to save grain for the war effort. However, this law was ratified exactly one week after the war had already ended. So then, two months later, Congress passed the Volstead Act, better known as the Prohibition Act, to create the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. It is interesting to note they did this despite President Woodrow Wilson, who in fact vetoed the bill. But with a two-thirds majority in favor in both the House and Senate, Congress was able to approve the act anyway. With drinks now limited to only half a percent alcohol content, this meant people needed a new drink. Technically, Beer was still sold, but only small beer, which is similar to children's beer as we mentioned in our History of Beer episode. Wine, too, was consumed at churches for use in the Eucharist, which I imagine led many to begin attending church more as a result. But this dry spell opened the way for coffee and tea to take over the former place of beer, wine, and cocktails in American society. At least, that's what people in the coffee industry believed would happen. It was, in fact, a slow transition which took place over the span of the 1920s. But coffee consumption did nonetheless grow. Coffee with lunch became more popular. Factories began offering free coffee to workers, and coffee became a drink for the road. This was also aided by some 2 million veterans of World War I who had acquired a taste for coffee. Brazil, for its part, paid for coffee ads to be put into newspapers and popular magazines beginning in 1919. But these ads were rather bland and somewhat predictable. So the following year, coffee ads began attacking Postum and other companies which had tried to slander coffee. They also began placing them in women's and health magazines. The leaders of America's coffee industry also supported this advertising campaign but with only a fraction of the money that Brazil was spending. Still, though, they were able to finance the making of a film, The Gift of Heaven, which depicted coffee growing. They also got coffee kits into 4th, 5th, and 6th grade classrooms to help encourage coffee to the next generation. A coffee club newsletter was created, which featured a cartoon kernel coffee to further entice children over to the dark side. Brazil would eventually complain about flipping most of the bill on the newsletter and not getting mentioned in it, so they did eventually bring Brazil into the newsletter. A further problem was a lack of funding from roasters, who, despite not giving money, were also gaining business from these coffee campaigns. So newspaper ads stopped appearing in states where roasters weren't donating to advertise. At this same time, the National Coffee Roasters Association went as far as hiring MIT professor Samuel Prescott to research coffee's health effects. He concluded, quote, For the overwhelming majority of adults, coffee is a safe and desirable beverage. End quote. 
He found it was good for endurance, worked as an antiseptic, and was a diuretic. The last part was generally left out of newspaper ads, but hey, maybe some people wouldn't mind an excuse for more bathroom breaks. Clearly, caffeine wasn't scaring people by 1924, as Poston began declining in sales. No longer were the ads of Charles Post effective against coffee. A new agency was hired to create ads for the company, which merely supported Postum, rather than attempting to tear down coffee. So with no more bars legally operating and a strong ad campaign, the desire for socialization led coffee establishments to take off. Keep in mind, alcohol was still allowed to be consumed in the comfort of one's home by anyone who had bottles already stored. It was truly then a need for socializing that drove coffee houses to begin opening all over the country. People were now apparently drinking 500 cups of coffee a year on average, with one man in Minnesota drinking 85 cups in just seven hours in 1927. It is interesting to note cafes began taking off in America around this time as well. Of course, coffee houses had been around since before the American Revolution, but places which sold both food and coffee became more popular during the 20th century. Taverns had of course sold coffee and food, but the concept of a cafe was fairly new to many Americans. In France, we began seeing cafes much earlier, but the overall idea of a restaurant was actually pretty recent as well. Many taverns, for example, would serve food, but it was often one choice and only at specific times. So you couldn't simply walk in and order from a menu at any time you'd like. With coffee becoming ever more popular, many restaurants began serving it, and many cafes opened as a result. One example of this was Alice Foot McDougall, the coffeehouse owner we talked about previously who was openly against the feminist movement. She opened the Little Coffee Shop in busy Grand Central Station in 1919, selling only whole bean coffee. But she later added chairs and tables to give people a place to rest. And after buying a percolator and waffle maker, she took off in sales. She opened a second coffee house in 1922, and with all this extra cash, she finally was able to take a vacation to Europe. While in Italy, she fell in love with their architecture and cafes. This story reminds me very much of Howard Schultz from Starbucks, who went to Italy and returned to America, inspired by their espresso cafe culture. She similarly returned and expanded her coffeehouses to look like an Italian courtyard, or cortile. This name became the new name for the cafe, and it became a beautiful building with cracked walls covered in vines and flowers. She went on to open a total of six coffeehouses, all with inspirations from different parts of Italy. Her magnum opus was her fifth cafe, the Seville, which opened in 1927 and was a million-dollar lease. Quite impressive for someone who was left with three children and $38 in the bank when her husband passed away just 20 years before. Let's check in with our major coffee brands. Coffee brands continued to dominate the industry, with over 5,000 brands in existence by the end of the 1930s. But of all these brands, three stood out. Atlantic and Pacific, Maxwell House, and Chase and Sanborn. Their great success was due to how sales were being made at this time, namely grocery stores. 
During World War I, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company began to expand across the country. And by 1925, it had more locations than any grocery store in the world. The largest selling item was, of course, coffee. The Jewel Tea Company had actually struggled to expand during World War I, partially due to an absence of young men to work, but also because the U.S. War Department commandeered their new massive coffee roasting plant for use during the war. By the war's end, they had lost half their yearly profits, and strikes by employees led the founders to step down. Luckily, the company was saved by John Hancock. No, unfortunately, this was not the founding father who gave us the term for a signature, nor is it the superhero played by Will Smith. But this John Hancock was able to turn the company's luck around during the 20s, at which time the horse-drawn wagon men were turned into delivery truck drivers. In fact, Mark Pendergast argues it may well have been because of new railroads, Jewel was able to increase their sales, now able to expand their reach to new areas of the country. On the west coast, we find MJB, Folgers, and Hills Brothers still vying for dominance on the coffee market, slowly expanding their coffee eastward. Seeing the success of Hills Brothers, Folgers adopted their vacuum canning technique, and they began selling their Golden Gate coffee in a red can, directly copying Hills Brothers. In 1921, James Folger II, son of the founders, Jim Folger, passed away of a heart attack, just as his father had. His brother, Ernest Folger, took over the company, and the following year he was assisted by James Folger III, who took over the advertising department. They started by promoting the uniformity of their coffee. Next, they pushed their brand to housewives, suggesting their product was a status symbol with regards to high class, as it was the perfect after-dinner coffee. The Hills brothers at the same time, Austin and Reuben Hills, that is, let their sons start running the business as they shifted into retirement. Under new leadership, the company moved into states from Alaska to New Mexico. Saturating every new market, they entered with newspaper ads and window displays at every store they could. But even with this increase in sales, a problem developed in the coffee industry around this time, which the Hills Brothers had to address. See, some grocery stores were struggling to compete with other stores on their coffee sales, and so began selling coffee brand names at below market price. So in 1920, Hills Brothers and several other companies implemented a minimum price on their coffee. This, in essence, meant these coffee brands would not sell their product to any grocer who wasn't selling their coffee for at least a nickel above wholesale price. There was a lashback by some stores, however, like the large chain Piggly Wiggly, who created an ad which explained Hills Brothers wanted them to raise the price of their coffee, stating, quote, Shall the consumer be the goat? No. Never. A thousand times, no. End quote. Some praised the company for standing up to Piggly Wiggly, while others felt a nickel was hardly a profit margin and was simply a way of creating an image for themselves as some sort of capitalistic hero. Nonetheless, MJB, Folgers, and others were considered by some to be outlaw roasters, leading Hills Brothers to declare their stand as, quote, a war, not a battle, end quote. 
This war would ultimately lead to surrender, however, as the Federal Trade Commission sued Hills Brothers in 1925 for price fixing. The company was not stopped by this, however, and continued eastward. They quickly moved across the United States, but found competition in the Midwest. See, in the mid to late 1920s, the Midwest was buying coffee from a mix of brands and local bulk coffee, while the rural areas bought quite a bit from Jewel Tea Company. So in 1928, Hills Brothers moved into Chicago and began putting up ads everywhere, giving out half-pound free samples of coffee and installing store displays. This led to great success. Similarly, they extended into Milwaukee that same year as an unknown brand and became the second most sold brand within two months, although Atlantic and Pacific still held the most sales with their 8 o'clock coffee. The following year, in 1928, they launched their new controlled roast method of coffee making. This meant their coffee would have a uniform roast flavor, but as a result, it lost the art of individual roasting. MJB was struggling at this time, in part due to a bad investment in rice, but also because of internal division of the Brandenstein family. See, the brothers, Eddie and Charlie, changed their names to Branston, as to avoid any anti-German sentiment during World War I. But this upset their brother Max and the other siblings, leading to a division in the family. Following the war, they were able to mend their rivalry, but the loss from their investment after a Cuban rice disaster led them into a bankruptcy, so bad their brother Manny supposedly died as a result. This seems a little dramatic, but nonetheless, their company was in danger of going under. Around the same time in 1921, Folgers offered to help bail out MJB if they wanted the assistance. With Max now in charge of the company, they began marketing their coffee as being stronger than other brands, and so the proportions could be cut in half, meaning customers could spend half the amount on coffee. In reality, this meant their coffee was watered down, but it still managed to increase sales. In contrast to the sustained growth or quick recovery seen by Folgers, Hills Brothers, and MJB, Arbuckle saw a dramatic decline. Leading into the 20s, Arbuckle was a giant in the coffee industry, and was large even compared to companies in most other industries. Since Arbuckle's death in 1912, the company had been under the guidance of his nephew, Will Jameson. Under Jameson, the company flourished. So, J. Walter Thompson, the agency hired to market for Arbuckle, wanted to make the brand a national one after their success with Yuban Coffee, the coffee brand launched by Jameson. In 1921, however, their plan for national advertising was rejected. It does seem odd Jameson wouldn't have approved an ad campaign of the very coffee he had pushed for just a few years earlier, but the decision may have been his mother's and aunt's, who actually held more stock in the company. As a result, the company began to decline. By 1928, Jameson, as well as his mother and aunt, had all passed away, leaving the company in the incapable hands of Jameson's two daughters, Margaret and Martha Jameson. They both cared little for the company's future, and by the end of the decade, Arbuckle could no longer be found in most grocery stores, and J. Walter Thompson gave up the account in hopes of finding another coffee company to advertise for. During the 20s, we see the beginning of conglomerates, or large companies who own lots of smaller companies. 
Technically, conglomeration is not something which really began until the 1960s, but we can still see it happening in our point in the historical narrative. In 1929, Royal Baking Powder Company bought Chase and Sanborn Coffee, and then Flitchman took over the company shortly thereafter. The company specialized in selling yeast, which was rather perishable. As a result, they used expiration dates, and so their Chase and Sanborn Coffee was also given dates, which allowed ads to suggest its freshness. That same year, in 1929, Post renamed itself to General Foods, now selling Maxwell House Coffee and their anti-coffee Postum under one brand. But what led Maxwell to be bought out by its previous rival? To answer this, we actually follow the story of J. Walter Thompson after they left Arbuckle. In the early 20s, Droll Cheek took Maxwell House Coffee to New York, and it quickly overtook Arbuckle's Ubin in sales. This attracted the attention of J. Walter Thompson, who wished to go into business with them. Initially, Maxwell stuck with its agency, but after a few years, they were wooed over and got the contract in 1924. Part of the reasoning for hiring J. Walter Thompson was likely due to expansion into California, where the agency already had an office. The other reason was likely their use of psychology, under the guidance of John B. Watson. Watson, the father of the new school of psychology known as behaviorism, was hired by the agency to help manipulate consumers. Behaviorism believes stimuli like anger, fear, and love can shape behavior. Essentially, by invoking these emotions, companies could manipulate people into buying their product. Watson was the vice president of the agency by this time, which left the Maxwell account in the hands of James Webb Young. Young was a former door-to-door -door Bible salesman, which led him into the business world of marketing. He had visited the Maxwell Hotel several times and so wanted to create a southern charm around the coffee brand, similar to that of the hotel. He had already accomplished a similar feat for the agency in his creation of the biography of Aunt Jemima the pancake syrup brand featuring a southern black woman. The result was a colored ad which featured the old Maxwell House Hotel as a splendid building rather than its actual worn-down appearance by this point. By 1927, Maxwell House was the leading coffee brand in America. This got the attention of Marjorie Post, daughter of C.W. Post and her millionaire husband, Edward Hutton. Hutton became CEO of Postum Cereal Company in 1923. During this time, they realized the company wasn't growing, so they began acquiring already successful brands, such as Jell-O. In 1928, they approached the Cheek Neal Company and bought them out for $42 million. So now, the once great enemy of coffee owned the largest coffee company in the country. Many family-owned brands would similarly succumb to the pressure of these ever-growing corporations. But these early conglomerates would soon face resistance as the world market would collapse in the Great Depression. So next time, we will follow Coffee's story as it faces the greatest economic disaster in modern history. But this economic disaster would eventually come to an end as an even greater threat to the world begins to loom in our story. An event so big that it changed the world we live in today. World War II is on the horizon. 
This show is written and produced by me, Eric Zaffer. If you're not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte a month, you can support this and future projects in the series while getting access to members' episodes, access to transcripts of the show, and a chance to win merch. It is through Patreon support that the show is able to keep going. But if you're not able to support the show financially, then I ask you to please leave a review of the show as this really helps the show to pop up for new listeners. Make sure to join our communities on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you would like to contact us, you can message us through social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on and make sure to share it with your family and friends. To close, here's a quote from John Holbrown. The habitual use of coffee would greatly promote sobriety, being in itself a cordial stimulant. It is a most powerful antidote to the temptation of spiritist liquors. <laughs>